The Sisters of the Islamic Center of Bloomington invite you to explore hijab from a personal perspective. We want to share the importance of hijab, why we choose to wear it, and what it means to us, in the hopes that by listening to our stories, you will come to better understand who we are as Muslims, women, and humans. The Hijabi Diaries. Muslim women speaking for themselves. You're listening to The Hijabi Diaries. I'm Aubrey Cedar. If you haven't heard already, The Hijabi Diaries is moving to London, England, from now until September of 2019. That means we'll be bringing you stories of our Muslim neighbors from the other side of the Atlantic. Look out for those episodes to start appearing in your podcast queues in January of 2019. So, with that in mind, here's a gentle reminder to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, whatever one floats your boat. If you subscribe, new episodes appear magically in your app ready to go for your commute or for your lazy Sunday afternoon. If you're a listener in London and you have a story you'd like to tell, please contact us by visiting our website at www.hijabidiaries.com. Today's episode of the podcast is different. This is likely the only episode you'll ever hear of the Hijabi Diaries that doesn't prominently feature the story of a hijabi. So, whoa, wait a minute. Why are we completely straying from our normal subject matter? Well, because late this past summer, a huge decision was made in the Supreme Court, one that will have a great impact on Muslim communities in the United States and abroad, as we keep moving forward. That decision, made in a 5-4 vote in the case of Trump versus Hawaii on June 26, 2018, was the decision to uphold President Trump's executive order, banning immigration from seven Muslim-majority nations. We're focusing on this decision today because so many stories have been hitting the national news each week that we've whizzed by this jaw-dropper of a decision without taking a deep dive into the context it's been created in, the history of decisions similar to this decision, and the implications that a decision like this brings with it. So today, a story that doesn't seem to be about our Muslim neighbors, but really has everything to do with them, everything to do with their safety and their future within this country. I got the chance to speak with lawyer, author, judicial scholar, and IU Maurer School of Law professor Ian Samuel about the Trump versus Hawaii case and to unpack all the issues and fears that surround the verdict. So you're going to hear Ian and I talk a lot about Trump versus Hawaii in comparison to a case that you might not have heard of, Korematsu versus the United States. The Korematsu case was a landmark case in American judicial history. Fred Korematsu, with the backing and legal support of the ACLU, took the United States to court over their internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War, following the Pearl Harbor bombing. In this case, the court ruled against Korematsu and the ACLU, stating that the president had the right to do what he saw fit to protect the country and its citizens during wartime. The verdict in this case has been considered a terrible black mark on the history of the Supreme Court since the war ended and the decree imprisoning the Japanese Americans was overruled. 
Hindsight proved to the court that the internment of the Japanese Americans was obviously based on racial discrimination and not on credible fears that further acts of war could be carried out by Japanese Americans, when many of these American citizens had no ties to Japan. We're comparing this case to the Hawaii versus Trump case in our interview today, because during the Supreme Court's hearing of the latter case, this comparison was made by media and justices alike. Um, so one of the things that I have read about you is that you did, um, you were a clerk for Justice Scalia. Is that true? That is true, yes. Justice Scalia talked a lot about, when he was talking about Komarotsu, um, that it was one of the worst decisions that the Supreme Court had made, one of the like, very regrettable conclusions they had come to. And he, But he also said that um, we were kidding ourselves if we thought that the same thing wouldn't happen again. Um, and that in times of war, the laws fall silent. How do you think that he came to that conclusion? Well, I think it's a, it's a descriptive claim, right, not a normative one. In other words, I think he's saying not that that would be good, right? He said that he admired, I think it was Justice Jackson's uh, dissent in Korematsu. So he's not saying, oh, this is a good thing. I think it's a statement or claim about human behavior. Um, and it's a claim about human behavior that's fairly well validated in our history. So if you look at the most disreputable Supreme Court opinions that we have, you start to notice that a whole lot of them, not all of them, but a whole lot of them, uh, arise in wartime. And the reason is because judges and really lawyers are not dispositionally brave people. Um, and I am a lawyer, so I think I'm allowed to say that, but their uh, courage is not one of the requisites for the job. And it takes a lot of courage to stand up to the political branches in wartime when they're saying things like this is this matter is essential to the security of this republic, you have to be very brave to say that may be true. We have no way to know if it's true because judges don't have that kind of information. Uh, that may be true, but the law is what it is. And most lawyers, most judges, they just aren't made of that kind of stuff. And so I think his claim is, is a descriptive claim. Um, and I think it's probably a correct claim, as we can see. It is true, like looking at some other wartime policies, um, there were policies during the War on Terror that had been struck down uh, by the Supreme Court measures that that wanted to, that the government wanted to take that they said, no, um, this can't be taken. But then um, this claim coming in for what's, what's commonly known as the travel ban, the Hawaii versus Trump, um, that they did settle on upholding the ban. What do you think made this time different than those other times after Korematsu that they had um, that they had struck down policy and said, no, we can't do this? Well, I think, you know, in part, um, I think that those, you know, decisions about, you know, really, you know, they're all decisions about the treatment and detention of people at Guantanamo Bay. Um, they were different in a number of respects. You know, number one, they uh, arose in a context where, you know, enough time had passed from you know, the, the sort of initial danger that people were starting to ask serious questions uh, and, and normal people, or even, even lawyers were starting to ask serious questions about the necessity of these measures. Whereas when you have the travel ban, you know, and, and I would like to just make very clear, there are, are some senses in which the travel ban decision is actually kind of hard to explain, right? Because the swing vote in the case, Justice Kennedy, he writes in his, uh, he writes a concurrence in that case, so he joins the chief justice's opinion, but he writes a concurrence in, the, in that case, which I believe is the last opinion he ever wrote uh, as a sitting justice, because he retired right after. Uh, and he's, he's this very cryptic concurrence where he says, you know, there are, there are 
basically some constitutional violations that we sometimes just can't do anything about. But the, it is very important that the government, you know, obeys the law and you know the eyes of the world are upon us and all this sort of stuff. It's a, it's a very strange opinion, very hard to read, very hard to understand what it means. And so I think what made the you know what made Trump versus Hawaii different is that Justice Kennedy, for whatever reason, you know, sort of got up to the line of scrimmage and didn't like what he saw. Whereas he was really an important swing vote in those uh, Guantanamo Bay cases. You know, Boumediene about you know the right of habeas corpus at Guantanamo and things like that. He was the swing vote in those cases. And so what made it different this time is he changed his mind. So let's back up and talk about this case, Trump versus Hawaii. In early 2017, President Trump issued Presidential Proclamation 9645, which prevented citizens of seven Muslim-majority nations from traveling or immigrating to the United States indefinitely for the foreseeable future. It also prevented refugees, or people without proper travel documents, from entering the United States. Shortly after this proclamation was made, a short list of states, Hawaii among the first of them, came out in opposition to the proclamation, citing two laws that made the proclamation unconstitutional. First, that it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. They made this argument on the grounds that it was obvious that this executive order was motivated by anti-Muslim sentiments within the government. Second, that under the Immigration and Nationality Act, this kind of halt on immigration of visitors, immigrants, asylum seekers, and refugees was not within the president's power to decree. This case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which is where Justice Kennedy, the swing vote, was left to sit with all the facts, all the arguments, and to make his decision, which, will we ever understand his motives? Even if we read his final statement of opinion, that's where we left off. So it, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that perhaps the, the reason that this passed is just all lies as other, as other things have done in the mind of Justice Kennedy. Like, it's, it's within yeah. him. Like, that's, that's why it happened. And so it's difficult to explain. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, because, look, this is a 5-4 decision, right? It'd be, we'd be having a different conversation if Trump versus Hawaii had been 9 nothing. Okay, then we'd really have to sort of give some larger account of you know, judges and judicial behavior and, and doctrine and things like that. But this is 5-4, right? If Justice Kennedy had taken that concurrence to its logical conclusion um, and voted the other way, then they would have invalidated the travel ban. And we would be having a completely different conversation because then been, there would have been four votes in the other direction and, you know, fill in the blanks. Um, so because Justice Kennedy was so capricious and because he was – really such a sort of Hamlet figure, you know, sometimes this way, sometimes the other way, uh, to be or not to be, um, it's, you know, it's harder, to, it's hard to give, a, you know, I wouldn't, in other words, place too much institutional explanatory power behind things that are really just Justice Kennedy going this way than the other, right? Because he's just one guy and he's not even there anymore. Right. Um, and then in terms of in the other justices um, who voted in that 5-4 in that five four decision, the other four justices um, that voted for to uphold the travel ban. Um, can you tell us about any of the reasons that they gave for why they voted to uphold it? Sure. Well, I mean, the most important one is the Chief Justice's opinion. And when this case was sort of coming up and when it was being argued, I had a sort of intuitive sense 
that the Chief Justice was quite likely to write in this case, because it's very, very important, and he really regards you know, his legacy and the sort of, you know, institutional legacy of the court is very important things that he must have known, as everyone knew, that this case was going to be uh, really important to finding one um, for his tenure on the court. So he writes, and what he basically says is that when it comes to the president's powers of national security and power over immigration, um, we do not necessarily look behind the veil when we are trying to assess whether something is infected with religious discrimination. That is, if there is a facially valid reason for the policy that kind of makes sense, we do not then look behind and see, well, what was the president's real reason for doing this, which is really the only possible way that the administration could win this case. Because if you look behind their stated reasons and ask yourself, what was the real reason for this ban? Well, we all know what the real reason was, because the president has repeatedly announced what the real reason for the ban is. Um, and so he says, but when it comes, you know, even though we do that in many other contexts, Right. There's this famous case, Church of the Lukumi Babaluaye, that is all about a Justice Kennedy opinion, by the way, that is all about looking behind the veil and seeing what are the real reasons and was it really motivated by religious animus. Um, we don't do that when it comes to the president in you know, these kinds of decisions of national security and immigration. We just don't look behind the veil like that. Um, and that's, you know, that's a very lawyerly argument. It does get you to the answer that the travel ban can survive. I don't agree with it, um, but that's the main thrust of the opinion. So looking back, so a lot of what came out in the news um, talking about um, this case was that the justices and other people had commented on the similarity, the similarities between this case and Korematsu. And can you just tell us why would they compare those two ca- these two cases to each other? Well, that's the principle, one of, not the principle, but a, a theme of the dissent by Justice Sotomayor is that there are really strains of similarities between this case and Korematsu. So Korematsu is a case that arises uh, out of the early part of the 20th century. It was about the legality of internment of Japanese citizens of the United States, Japanese-American citizens of the United States. And the court upheld that uh, over dissents that have aged, uh, I would say, far better than the majority opinion. And so Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, says, you know, we are going to look back on this, this sort of like, you know, a policy that seems clearly to be motivated by uh, racism or, at minimum, uh, religious animus and religious discrimination, we are going to look back on this and we're going to think that it's the same kind of mistake uh, that we made in Korematsu. And, you know, I really wish uh, that we would avoid this. And then his, in his majority opinion, the chief justice says, well, it's really not the same thing at all, and he has his reasons. But, he says, uh, this does give us an opportunity to say what you know has already been made clear in what he's called the court of history, uh, that Korematsu was wrong, uh, that it should not have been decided that way, and that it's says, well, now it's formally overruled, uh, which is fine. Um, but the point of these, but the point, I think, is that it's easy to say that when you're 60 or 70 years removed from the events, right? You can say, oh, Korematsu was wrong. But I think what Justice Sotomayor is really saying is what counts is what you do in the moment, right? What counts is the decision. So okay, in 60 or 70 years, some you know wise chief justice will say, yeah, Trump versus Hawaii was wrong the day it was decided. It's been overruled in the court of history, blah, blah, blah. But what matters is what you do in the moment. Uh, and so you know, what it demonstrates is that you know, official government policy that is based on animus with respect to race, that is based on animus with respect to religion, that is not a thing that is confined to the early 20th century, nor is the Supreme Court's seeming lack of bravery in confronting it. Right. But like the Chief Justice says, they cannot 
is it his opinion that they don't look behind behind the veil on those things or is that an official legal constitutional thing that they that the supreme court does not have the right to look behind the veil or that that's just not the practice and perhaps it should be a thing that they are permitted to do well that's the in, in many ways those are the same question, right? Because that was the question presented in this case. Do you look behind, are you supposed to, as a matter of law, assess the real motivations for a policy like this? Or do you just take at face value what the government says the justifications are? So, I mean, the dissenters would have looked behind the veil, and the people in the majority said, you know, no, we shouldn't do that. And so uh, I, I think very much the right answer is, because it's, and it's important for people to know, in a lot of other contexts, we do look behind the veil, right? So if a, you know, if a city council passes a law that seems neutral on its face, but you can see in the debates over the measure uh, that it was, it was really motivated, say, you know, by anti-Semitism, right? Maybe this is a, uh, maybe this is some kind of, you know, regulation of businesses uh, that uh, you know, seems neutral, but is, is clearly targeting, you know, a city's Jewish population or something. The Supreme Court would strike that down in a heartbeat, right? Because they'd say, we really, we know what's really going on here, uh, and you can't have anti-religious animus. But the majority says, you know, when it comes to the president, when it comes to national security and immigration, uh, we're not going to do that. Um, so, you know, I think that's quite wrong, and the dissenters think it's quite wrong. Um, but that is, you know, for now, the law. So if you are a person who's steering down the barrel of a sort of policy motivated by religious discrimination, at least religious discrimination against minority religions, you know, the Supreme Court at the end of last term was very solicitous of a claim of religious discrimination by a sort of uh, Protestant baker out of Colorado who claims that the Civil Rights Commission was discriminating against him. Um, but I have to say, if you're staring down the barrel of an official government policy that seems to be motivated by uh, you know, animus against a minority religion in the United States, uh, I wouldn't get anywhere near this, this particular Supreme Court, uh, if I were you, because this was the case. This was the case that, that asked, will you look behind the veil? And the answer, the answer uh, supplied was no. by the majority is, no, we won't. Um, so until basically we have a change in personnel, right, until we have people on the court who believe that that is not correct, uh, then I don't think you're going to see a different answer. So um, there were two cases brought by the ACLU. One of them was Hawaii versus Trump, and the other one was Doe et al. versus Trump. And the Hawaii versus Trump is the one that's been decided on, this idea of um, immigration, um, bringing people in from um, these Muslim-majority countries that Trump selected. But then Doe et al. is about um, more about refugees, specifically about the Syrian um, refugee crisis, bringing in people that need a place to come. And so do you, do you have any predictions on how this case will go? You know, I, I don't. Um, I don't have any predictions because I think the arguments in that case uh, are in part statutory. Uh, you know, the, the biggest controversies in Trump versus Hawaii were constitutional controversies, right? Is this discrimination on the basis of religion? Um, I'm not as familiar with the other case, but I believe it's that the claims in that case are about, you know, sort of statutory stuff, like do, do our statutes that with respect to uh, refugees um, and you know the various international conventions we've signed with respect to refugees, do they permit this kind of thing? Um, and so, although I wish them well, um, I don't have any particularly informed uh, predictions about their likelihood of success. There are people, I mean, there are lots of statements being made after by the media and by the public after the decision on Hawaii versus Trump. Um, and one of them is the fear that this will, this decision by the Supreme Court will create more opportunities for prejudice, active prejudice by the government against people um, based on their religion. 
Um, there are people even going so far as to say, like, what if internment happens or what if people's citizenship is revoked or their residency is revoked due to those religions? Do you think any of these claims um, have a, a basis in in history or, or have um, or are good claims? Well, I think they are. Um, I mean, because, look, if the principle to be applied is as long as there's a neutral founding reason uh, that appears in you know the official White House policy, we won't look behind and assess what's really going on. Um, you can well imagine, and the United States, is our history is full of examples uh, of instances of that kind of mistreatment, right? So, I mean, you know, there, when you're a you know, con law student, uh, as, a, as a, you know, when you're a law student, um, you literally study a case called the Chinese exclusion cases, right? Which the name of that one pretty much tells you what it's all about. So um, we have a pretty rich history of discrimination against, um, you know, especially in the immigration context of this kind of discrimination. So you know, the question is, does the administration want to do that? And there's one sense in which you might say, well, the travel ban is kind of this holdover um, from the really early heady days of the Trump administration, and then they sort of leveled out. Um, but I don't think that's actually correct. I think there are, there are many, many people still in the administration who are very interested, for example, and, and they're actively pursuing uh, revocation of citizenship for example, they have the whole project going where they sort of investigate um, people who have acquired citizenship in the United States. You know, they become citizens in some cases very long before, um, and they investigate to see, well, was there really a reason you should have been denied citizenship? And they're going to go, you know, try to you know find this stuff out and denaturalize people. So they're very interested in these kinds of, of policies. And the Supreme Court, at least, has indicated they, have, they don't really have any interest in stopping that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think those are legitimate concerns, and I think that we're already sort of seeing that, frankly. Um, so uh, off of what you said, there was, um, as I actually, as I was writing up these questions, because of course we've had a lot of rhetoric that's more nationalistic, um, looking into these these fears that, per, um, you know, that immigrants and people coming into the country or being born illegally within the country are, are overrunning regular citizens. And Jeff Sessions um, said he there's this quote that um the u.s foreign-born population is growing too fast um yep. which uh which he made the other day um and so there are similar nationalistic feelings that are rising in europe um in a lot of those countries where they've taken in a lot of immigrants and refugees um do you think um do you think that the the like you just said um that the supreme court would allow more legislation to come through to crack down even harder um, on on people living here as immigrants? Um, yeah, well, I think this court would, right? And, and I think that that, in part, is, is the idea uh, that, I mean, you know, it's hard to say without sort of specifics, but uh, there are a whole range of things you could do and that the immigration hardliners in the administration, of whom Jeff Sessions is absolutely one and who is a, he's a true believer in this stuff, to see he's not... Johnny come lately to this issue. Uh, he really believes in a kind of, you know, um, what I would describe as a, a kind of barely concealed, you know, blood and soil nationalism. Um, absolutely, they could do more. And absolutely, I think the Supreme Court would uphold it. Uh, because the, 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 what the travel ban really shows is that, you know, if you, the, the Supreme Court is not going to save you from these people, right? That is the takeaway from the travel ban. If you are disgusted by things like the travel ban, if you are concerned, uh, by, you know, ideas uh, like, like the foreign-born population is growing too fast. If you hear that, you don't like the sound of that. The Supreme Court is not going to be the one that saves you from that. They just demonstrated that. And, you know, historically that has been the case. 
that if you, you know, the only effective check on that kind of thing is, is building and exercising political power. And the court is just not a strong enough institution to really put a stop to that. And they don't appear to have any interest in putting a stop to that. Um, and so I think that these things, you know, they, they're, if they're concerning to someone who's listening, uh, the, the Supreme Court is not going to save you. That is really true. And that it's really important that people understand that. Right. Um, and I, although this may lay, lay out of your area of expertise, to how do the people build that political power? Is it just through things like the the general, the midterm elections that are coming up, being able to to restack, you know, the co- Congress and the House and those sorts of things in their in their own local political powers? Or is there is there are there other things that they can do to fight this sort of rhetoric and these sort of laws? Well, so I think that that's that's fine. That's a good start. In other words, uh, you know, electoralism is is fine and dandy. Um, but actually, um, you know, when you when I look back at the the travel ban, the the thing that I think about the most that I think was was really an effective demonstration of political power is the night that it was announced. I mean, remember it was this crazy night when it was announced when there were people on airplanes flying to the United States who then couldn't clear customs because this was announced on no notice. The night that it was announced. There were massive direct action demonstrations at the airports, for example, in New York, where cab drivers largely went on strike, um, like a sort of spontaneous direct wildcat strike. Um, And people could not get to or from uh, the airport. It stranded like tons of travelers. It was insanely disruptive. Now, that is political power, right? That kind of direct action uh, where, you know, you're not waiting around and thinking, oh, well, don't worry, we'll get them in a, you know, couple years in the, in the midterm elections. Um, no, they went on strike right then. And, and because, you know, of course, you know, a lot of cab drivers uh, in New York City are themselves uh, foreign born. They live in the United States. And there was, this, you know, it was, it was, it was excellent. It was really a demonstration of sort of labor power. Um, and so I think that, look, you know, it's, it's good and it's excellent to, you know, go vote. That's wonderful. Uh, but don't, don't ignore the power of what I would call, you know, more direct action. Um, because that stuff can be genuinely disruptive and genuinely threatening um, to any power structure in a way that, quite frankly, the Supreme Court never can be. So uh, I would just, you know, I would say think big, think bold. Right. And it does remind me of the um, also the protests that um, after we found out that there was a policy of child of family separation, that there were these massive protests and public shaming of the government. And then very quickly, this turnover to the next executive order. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, people were doing things, and I think this was very good, like, you know, basically occupying, uh, you know, ICE facilities in various cities, you know, sort of round-the-clock uh, demonstrations and, and occupations um, to really, you know, you know, that stuff has power. That stuff has power that, you know, and I say this as a lawyer who's written many legal briefs, that's power that a legal brief is never really going to have, right? And if you have that stuff, maybe that's what encourages judges to be a little more brave, right? Maybe that, maybe that can sort of, you know, demonstrate that, um, you know, they're, they're not arrayed, you know, entirely against uh, the only powerful interests in society, that there are powerful interests on both sides. Um, and so I think that that stuff, you know, especially if you're a normal person who's not a professional Supreme Court litigator, um, you know, don't just think you have to sort of sit on the sidelines and watch as the kind of, you know, nerds sorted out in D.C. That's not how this works. Because you may, have, in fact, as a person, have more courage than they necessarily have, and your courage could be emboldening to them. Absolutely. I mean, those, those cab drivers in New York who, who went on strike that day, I mean, that was more of a sort of personal sacrifice, I'm sure, because, I mean, look, I mean, if you're giving up wages, you're losing money, you may not have a lot. That was more of a per, sort of personal, courageous sacrifice uh, than I've probably ever seen from, you know, like an actual lawyer in my years of being one. 
Um, and so, you know, the, the courage, in other words, must must come from um, must come from the rank and file uh, because it is not going to come from the elites. And they, they may follow, but they won't lead. Ian Samuels is a professor at the IU Maurer School of Law. He's also a published author and a lawyer who studies the American justice system. He's the producer and the host of First Mondays, a weekly podcast that keeps you updated on all that's happening in our nation's highest court. Might be a good time to check that one out. The Hijabi Diaries is produced by me, Aubrey Cedar, with help from WFHB News Director Wes Martin and open-hearted campaign founder and executive director Anna Mighty. For more information on the podcast or to download episodes, go to our website at www.hijabidiaries.com. Thanks to Ian Samuel, our guest for today. And as always, thanks to you for listening. Filled with love and light, may your wrongs be right, may your songs be tight. May